Good morning, everyone. Uh, I am sorry that I'm not able to be with you today uh, in worship, but I am grateful for, uh, again, for the video format that allows me to, to bring this week's teaching to you. So this morning, we're starting a, a new series that's going to reach into November. The title of the series is uh, No Hurry. And the series is going to address the practical challenges of the Christian life, uh, living as a disciple of Jesus in the, the busy, hurried, and harried world we live in today. The series is going to be rooted in scripture, of course, but uh, it'll be shaped by a recent book by a pastor named John Mark Comer titled The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry. And if that phrase sounds familiar to you, it's because it uh, first appeared in the book, The Life You've Always Wanted, uh, which was written uh, 15 years ago, I think, uh, by John Ortberg. So the series is going to follow the structure of Comer's book. And so you're invited to pick it up uh, to dig deeper into the themes and lessons, lessons that we'll be covering. But you don't have to have the book uh, in order to follow the series. And I want to begin today by laying a foundation, a, a, a kind of a baseline for what it means to be a Christian. Uh, this is going to be a review of teachings that we've covered before uh, for those who have uh, been around at uh, Meadowlands Fellowship for a while. I, I want to recap what it meant at the time of the New Testament to be a disciple. It's easy to think that disciples were just those people who hung around with Jesus, but the definition of disciple is actually much broader. Discipleship was a former, formal, structured institution in first century Palestine. It was a, a common and widely understood apprentice uh, system. Disciples were in training uh, to become rabbis or Jewish teachers of the Torah, the Old Testament law. Discipleship was the end game, if you will, of the whole religious school system. The goal for each student in the system was to be good enough to pass on to the next level. Uh, in the same way that, that most every parent of a kid in novice level hockey wants their little prodigy to make it all the way to the NHL, most every Jewish parent in Judea and Galilee dreamed of their son becoming a rabbi one day. It was a culturally prestigious honor to have a rabbi in the family. So children would start out at age four or five studying at the local village synagogue with the task of memorizing the entire Torah, that is the, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through De Deuteronomy. And only the very best of the best would be allowed to continue to the next level, the study of the rest of the Old Testament. But, but that study would also happen while the students were, were learning a trade, such as uh, fishing or masonry. The final stage, uh, the sort of uh, grad school, if you will, was to become a disciple of a rabbi. Very, very few of those uh, most outstanding students after the second level would seek permission to study with a, a famous scholar of scripture. Choosing a rabbi and spending some time together uh, in, in sort of an extended interview, that was, that was the application process. And at the end of that, uh, the applicant would hope to hear these words of acceptance from the rabbi, the call, follow me. To follow a rabbi and learn from him was to take up his yoke, uh, which we'll hear more about next week. To follow a rabbi was an intensive, deeply personal way of learning. A disciple would leave home to travel with his rabbi as, as he taught from village to village. The disciple would learn his rabbi's teaching for sure, right? His, his interpretation of the law and the prophets. 
And the goal, of course, was to carry that, that teaching on. But the disciples' goal was more than just absorbing the, the teachings of the rabbi. It was, it was really replicating uh, living the rabbi's life in, in every detail. There is a story, for instance, of a disciple who followed his rabbi into the bathroom to learn. There's another story of how uh, one rabbi's disciples uh, would limp the way that he had limped. A good disciple was said to be covered with the dust of his rabbi. Uh, that, that would come from following closely everywhere on the dry roads and, and pathways of Israel. A disciple, a disciple wants to learn to be like the rabbi so that he can be the presence of the rabbi when the rabbi is absent. Right? You, you want to be him when he is not there. And this was typically about a, a, a three-year apprenticeship. Now, I have found this history of discipleship at the time of Jesus just a, a tremendously helpful way to understanding the calling to, to be a Christian, right? Uh, it certainly helps explain some puzzling passages, right? Why three young men would immediately drop their nets and walk away from the family business when Jesus said simply, follow me. Or why Jesus said it is enough for a student to be like his teacher. So it's both uh, humbling and empowering to know that we, too, are chosen by God for this calling. As Jesus said to his first disciples at the Last Supper, Everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. And choosing his disciples, uh, John and Peter, you and me, Jesus was saying, I think you can be like me. That's, that's the calling that we have today. That's what, that's what this Christian life is all about. The, the lifelong personal calling to be Jesus to such an extent that people not only stand, understand what he taught, they also can see in us who Jesus is. So the question to wrestle through then is, what would the life of Jesus look like today? That is, how would Jesus live my life? And of course, in, in 21st century discipleship, some translation is going to be needed. Right? Jesus was a first century itinerant rabbi. He didn't have a nine to five job. He was without a, a spouse or children or grandchildren. He didn't drive a car to work, make mortgage payments, uh, write exams, or have to figure out how to transfer his playlist from Google Play Music to YouTube. Our lives are different because our world is different, right? I would ask, what would, would Jesus be like as a husband and a father of three young adults and, and a pastor of a congregation? Others would ask, well, how would Jesus as a university student prep for midterms, right? How can a mom with three kids under four live like Jesus? What decisions would Jesus make as a retiree looking to invest time, skills, and knowledge? Now, one thing for sure, says Pastor Comer in his book, if Jesus were living our lives today, he would slow down. Now, it's not that Jesus didn't have much to do. He, he certainly did. He, he was busy. In Mark chapters 1 and 2, our, our introduction to Jesus and his ministry, uh, those two chapters include the Greek word for immediately 13 times. Right? This happened, and then immediately Jesus went on, and then immediately this happened. It gives you a, a picture of the, the, the busyness, the urgency of his ministry. But I think it's fair to say that Jesus was not hurried. 
when he was on his way, for instance, to, to heal the dying servant of a very important and powerful man, a Roman centurion, Jesus stopped in the middle of, of a pressing crowd around him and said, who touched me? And his disciples, of course, point out, hey, you're in the middle of a crowd. But Jesus refuses to hurry, seeking out the woman whose faith had healed her. And this is the, the core thesis of the whole series. Hurry is toxic to a healthy faith. Not just the hurry of an impatient moment or trying to catch up when running late. I mean also a, a hurried life, a life that is burdened with too much to do and not enough time. Dallas Willard, who was uh, certainly one of the most foremost thinkers over the last few decades on faith formation and healthy spirituality, he said this, hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. And this is because, as, as another author, Bill Gautier, has written, hurry is a symptom of exaggerated self-importance and trying to do too much. It steals from us the precious, precious moment at hand. Or as John Ortberg has put it, being hurried is an inner condition, a condition of the soul. It means to be so preoccupied with myself and my life that I'm unable to be fully present with God, with myself, and with other people. I cannot rest in God with a hurried soul. And while we might think that, that Jesus had it easy living in ancient times without a smartphone or, or even a clock, remember that he was under pressure to hurry. After his first day of ministry out of the wilderness, he stepped away for some rest and connection with his father. And his disciples went looking for him. And they said to him, everyone is looking for you. But Jesus did not yield to the pressure to hurry. This is the shepherd that we are called to follow as the sheep of his flock. And that's where we're going to be going uh, with the text for the message today from John chapter 10. But first, it's going to be helpful for a, another bit of review, review about Israel's geography. Our Bible text is going to talk about sheep, but our own mental images of sheep in a pasture can get in our way, right? Because we, uh, in, here in Ontario, we pr picture pastures as lush, tall fields with a sheep safely fenced in, right? The image that I get in my head often is the sheep country in England, you know, the kind of fields that you see in the movie Babe. Now, we, we talked about this just over a month ago. The, the sheep in Palestine graze in, in a dry wilderness. They're on arid hillsides with gravelly soil because in that land, the best soil is going to be used for growing crops. The sheep feed on thin grasses because the grasses were, especially in the, in the dry season, so sparse, it, it was necessary for the flocks to always continue moving. And because these pasture lands were so vast in size and shared by everyone in the community, there were, and, and still there are today, no fences. And of course, that puts sheep in greater danger from predators. All of these unique factors mean that if, if you're going to be a successful shepherd in Israel, you're going to need to spend a lot of time with your sheep. You've got to closely supervise them, be with them, kind of like a rabbi with disciples. Unfenced sheep require constant supervision. And the constant need for new pastures means that you're traveling far from home, further than would allow for a return at the end of the day. So shepherds 
had to be sure to have access to remote but safe overnight accommodations for their flock. Up in the dry, distant hills then, the, the shepherding communities built simple uh, pens or, or what are called sheepfolds, uh, a, a kind of a, a circular rock fence or paddock with a small opening for getting in and out. An ancient shepherd, and, and Bedouin shepherds today, would plan their day so as to arrive at a sheepfold right before nightfall to get their flock safely inside for the night. And sometimes the shepherd would sleep in the entrance to make sure no predators could get in and no sheep would slip out. Now, at times when the paddocks were big enough and the flocks were small enough, you could have several flocks in the sheepfold overnight at one time. The shepherds then having a chance uh, to see one another uh, and, uh, and to catch up on the latest news which might make us wonder how hard it was for the shepherds to get all their animals separated again in the morning. But actually it's pretty easy because sheep will listen to their shepherd's voice. Remember, there's a relationship there based in lots of time spent together. It's why Palestinian shepherds do not drive their sheep from behind, but lead their sheep from the front. If you see a flock uh, when you're in Israel, uh, see it from a tour bus, you'll see that the shepherd is at the front of the flock, not uh, in the back. Shepherds can even call to themselves individual sheep to direct them away from danger or to look them over for, for insect bites or other problems. And there are many stories like this one told by George Adam Smith in his book, Historical Geography of the Holy Land. Sometimes we enjoyed our noonday rest beside one of these Judean wells to which three or four shepherds would come down with their flocks. The flocks mixed with each other and we wondered how each shepherd would get his own again. But after the watering and the playing were over, the shepherds one by one went up different sides of the valley and each called out his peculiar call and the sheep of each drew out of the crowd to their own shepherd and the flocks passed as orderly as they came. Now, all of this is preparation for the text, John 10, verses one through six. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and his sheep follow be because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. The word of the Lord. Okay, so here's our takeaway for today. Hearing the shepherd's voice is crucial. In the latter chapters of this gospel, after this passage, John tells us how Jesus called three of his disciples by name. Philip, he called by name there at the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper. Mary Magdalene is called by name on Easter morning at the empty tomb. And after a huge catch of fish, Peter is called by name three times as he is directed by Jesus to feed his sheep. For each one of these disciples being called by name by Jesus, our shepherd, 
was a life-changing event. So what about us? Are you committed to hearing the voice of the shepherd? I don't think I have to try to make a case that we live in a noisy world. And in a noising world, hearing takes work. We have to pay attention to pick out the voice of the shepherd above the din of playlists and podcasts, work demands and crying children, news about politics and pandemic, and ads for the next iPhone. It takes discipline to put aside the, the noise of our busyness, of our hurry. And we ought not let the sickness that hurry can be drive us to distraction. In the Christian life, in following Jesus, there are stark choices to be made. The truth is you cannot have it all. You cannot serve two masters. You're going to have to make some sacrifices, including some of your sacred cows. The good news is that we can be hopeful. The good shepherd is calling you by name. Following his voice will lead you out of the mess and mob. Your rabbi has called you to follow because he thinks you can be like him. And all God's people said, Amen. Please pray with me. Lord God, in this weekend of thankfulness, we are grateful for the time that you spent on earth with us, teaching us through the Gospels what it means to be your disciples, the sheep of your flock. Help us to listen. Give us what we need to lay aside our hurry to find our rest in you. In the challenges that will come over this series in the next few weeks, give us the trusting faith and courage to make sacrifices that will serve to help us to be conformed more and more to your image by your grace and through the Holy Spirit's work. In your name we pray. Amen.